This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. This week's episode is brought to you by Bayer. Bayer makes aspirin that helps save lives during a heart attack and protects the heart of a family. From advances in health to innovations in agriculture, Bayer is advancing science for a better life. At Bayer, this is why we science. Welcome to the Science Podcast for November 1st, 2019. I'm Sarah Crespi. On this week's show, Science News intern Eva Frederick joins me to talk about how measles infection can erase immune history, even from vaccines. And I talk with Todd Thompson about finding missing black holes. Where are all the small ones? Measles is an incredibly infectious disease. And it doesn't just make you sick. It can also wipe out your immune system's memory, taking away protections the body has built up from previous infections. Two studies this week took a careful look at this effect on the immune system. News intern Eva Frederick is here to talk about them. Hi, Eva. Hi, Sarah. Okay, measles is bad. It is not good. It kills sometimes 100,000 people a year right now. And it's on the rise. Is this because of people skipping vaccines? Yeah, that's what experts think. There's a lot of communities that are either anti-vaccination or there are communities who are vaccine hesitant. So they like to set their own vaccine schedule. So that means that they might still get it, but it would be after the recommended timing. And so their kids would be susceptible to measles. Right. Do you want to mention what the increased number is that you put in your story? Measles cases have increased by more than 30% globally from 27 to 2018. And then in 2019, we had a record number of cases in the U.S., the most since 1992. There was some inkling before these studies that measles had an impact on the immune system, but those looked at the rates of infection and mortality after a person had had measles. What did the researchers do in this case to look at the immune system function after a measles infection? Right. So like you said, previous studies had either been in animals or they had looked on the population level. So a lot of different people. And these two studies looked at an actual cohort of people in the Netherlands. This is a community Mm -hmm. that doesn't vaccinate for religious reasons, but they're really willing to be involved in scientific studies. Interesting. Yeah. So the researchers were able to take blood samples both before children contracted measles and then again after. What did they look for in the blood of these? These are children, right, who were infected with measles. The two studies looked at different measures. The first study by Mina and colleagues looked at the antibody repertoires in the blood. So the different defenses that 
the children's bodies had built up against pathogens that had already been exposed to. And they found that after a case of measles, the children's antibody repertoires decreased by anywhere from on average 20%, but sometimes up to as much as more than 70%. That means that say they had one version of the common cold or chickenpox, the antibodies that their body had created for those are no longer around. And so they're vulnerable to infection with the same viruses or bacteria again. Right. Or else their antibodies, there might be still some around, but they're really decreased. So they might not have enough to provide immunity. And then the second study actually looked at another effect on the immune system. So the other group, Petrova and colleagues, they looked at both memory B cells, which help the body remember different pathogens. And they also looked at naive B cells in the bone marrow. So the naive B cells are the cells that will, when a new pathogen is encountered, the naive B cells in your bone marrow will hopefully recognize or be able to bind to this new pathogen and then they can form an immune response and then they'll diversify and create antibodies. So that's really like your first line of defense when you encounter a new pathogen is these naive B cells. So what they found in the naive B cells is that not only was the virus deleting immune memory, but it was also affecting these cells without any memory and making them less likely to be able to recognize and bind to new pathogens. The reason this is happening is because when measles infects, the measles virus infects a person, it's actually going into the immune cells, the cells important to the immune system. Right. Yes. Measles infects immune cells. Is there any advantage to the measles virus to do damage to the immune system in this way? Right. I don't know if there's an advantage, but I do know that the reason it happens, the researchers think, is that obviously after you've had measles, you are immune to measles afterwards. And so it's kind of a double hitter of measles infecting immune cells and destroying them. And then also your body creating new immunity to measles. So you are really just replacing a lot of your other immunity with measles immunity. Huh. These kids weren't vaccinated. So I don't know if you can answer this question, but, you know, the kids in the study, would would the effect on, you know, vaccine induced antibodies be the same? So say you had been vaccinated against chickenpox and then you got measles, would measles wipe out your immunity that you'd acquired from the exposure to a vaccine? Right. Yes, it could. And so one of the researchers' recommendations was after a child contracts measles, they should actually get revaccinated for everything they had already been vaccinated for. Oh, wow. Because it could wipe out that immunity. But there's no danger from the measles vaccine itself that it could wipe out immunity to other diseases that you've either been vaccinated for or infections that you've experienced. No. When the researchers looked at the measles vaccine, they found it did not cause any of this immune amnesia effect. It didn't wipe out any antibodies. Okay. Thank you so much, Eva. Thank you. Eva Frederick is a news intern at Science. You can find a link to her article and the related papers at sciencemag.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for an interview with Todd Thompson about detecting small black holes. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there's no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, Upload your resume or CV to the searchable database or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. 
Visit sciencecareers.org today. Black holes are hard to find. They don't exactly advertise themselves unless they're eating, taking in matter and emitting x-rays. If they're not doing that, if they're not interacting, the only way to see them is through their influence on nearby objects. But what if a black hole was kind of small and not interacting with matter? How would one go about finding such a thing? Todd Thompson and colleagues did just that in a paper this week in science. And Todd is here to tell us about it. Todd, thanks for being here. So what exactly did you find? We found a black hole orbiting a giant star in the middle of the outer galaxy. Has this ever been seen before, this kind of binary pair of a black hole and a red giant star? Black hole and a star has been seen before, but usually it's either in a globular cluster, and globular clusters are very dense, stellar environments, very ancient, or black holes are seen with stars, but they're discovered through X-ray observations usually because the black hole is actively accreting gas from the star. The reason why the non-interacting black hole is interesting is because there's a big population of black holes, presumably, that are out there that we simply don't know about because most of them are found via this X-ray emission. If that wasn't happening here, if that wasn't happening in this case, it's a non-interacting black hole, how were you able to see it, find it? The way we found this particular system and the way you see systems that are non-interacting is you find them based on the Doppler shifts or sometimes called radial velocity of the star. So what happens is as the star is orbiting this black hole, it's moving sometimes towards you and sometimes away from you, and you see a corresponding blue shift and red shift to the spectral lines of the star. And then using those measurements, you can decide whether or not it's orbiting something massive or not very massive. What kind of instruments or surveys did you use to detect what you saw in this paper? We started with what's called the Apogee data. Apogee is a survey that went and took spectra of many, 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 many stars, several spectra for each star. And so what you can do is you can compare those spectra and you can say from one day to the next or from one week to the next, do we see a Doppler shift? Do we see a radial velocity shift? And once we know that a star does exhibit a radial velocity shift, then we can start to decide whether or not it might be, it might have an interesting companion. What other kinds of things might be in orbit or in this pair with the red giant star? If it wasn't a black hole, if it was something else, would you be able to detect that something else? The companion could be another star. It could be a white dwarf. It could be a neutron star, or it could be a black hole. The maximum mass of a white dwarf is 1.4 times the mass of the sun. And the lowest mass neutron star, as we know of, are 1.2 times the mass of the sun. And so we need to work through these different possibilities. So the first thing we do is we look at the magnitude of the radial velocity shift. Is that to get at the mass? That's right. So if you have a tiny little shift, then that might indicate a very low companion mass like a planet. This system has a big radial velocity shift. And so we immediately knew uh, that the mass of the companion would be fairly large, but we still didn't know exactly how massive it would be. So the first thing you do is you look to see, 
if there's other light in the system. Is there another star? Right. Is there another star? Precisely. So what we do is we look at the spectra and we look at the whole distribution of the light coming from the system. And we see no evidence for a companion star. And then we have to decide whether or not it could be a white dwarf. A white dwarf is the remnant of a normal star. So like the sun will eventually turn into a white dwarf at the end of its life. Once we mapped out these radial velocities, we were able to say that the mass had to be above a white dwarf mass. It could also be a neutron star. Right. And once you're above a white dwarf mass, you could have a neutron star or a black hole. What are the properties of a neutron star that make it difficult to detect? Neutron stars are tiny. They're not very luminous. They're very difficult to see. They basically appear as a dark stone in space, unless they're accreting material, like material that's being siphoned off a nearby star, or unless they're a pulsar, or they're just newly born, like they're right near a brand new supernova. And neutron stars also have a range of masses the lowest mass neutron stars that are known are about in that range, 1.2, 1.3, 1 1.4 times the mass of our sun. And the most massive ones we know about are about 2.1 times the mass of our sun. What about black holes? Do they have constraints like this? Well, we have the sample of black holes in our galaxy. There are a dozen or two dozen. And those are all between about five and six times the mass of the sun and maybe 10 or 15 times the mass of the sun. And then LIGO detects its merging black holes from across the universe, and those are 20, 30 times the mass of the sun. Is it possible that we have a biased view of what black hole masses are? Maybe when black holes are siphoning gas off their companions, they're these five to six times the mass of the sun, all the way up to 15 times the mass of the sun. Maybe there's some other new population out there. You know, we've only discovered a few dozen. Right. There must be tens of thousands in the Milky Way, maybe more. So it's just a matter of finding those and then trying to quantify what their masses could be. If the black hole is the dark companion, what is its mass? What do you estimate the mass of the black hole to be? Our upper mass limit extends all the way to 6.1, but our lower mass limit extends down to about 2.6 times the mass of the sun. And our best fit is 3.3 times the mass of the sun. And there are no black holes that are well measured in that range. There's a thing called a mass gap. There's a gap between the neutron stars and the lowest mass black holes. And we've been wondering for a long time whether something might actually sit in that mass gap. Astronomers who are interested in this are like, wow, 3.3 for your best fit is a weird number. We don't, we don't know of other ones like that. And yes, the upper mass bound does go to 6.1. So maybe we're going to find out that it's a five solar mass black hole. Fine. But our best fit at present is 3.3. And that's another reason why it's interesting. What can you do to, to refine this measurement and to shrink your error bars? There's a telescope called Gaia. They make these incredibly precise measurements of the location of stars on the sky. And as the Earth moves around the sun, the star appears to move with respect to the background stars because our perspective changes from December to June and June to December. That's called the parallax effect. Now, Gaia should be able to see the star move back and forth on the sky around this dark companion. What will that additional measurement tell you? It will tell you about the geometry of the system. 
The mass of the black hole or the dark companion depends on the orientation of the system on the sky. So if the system is exactly edge on, you get the maximum blue shift and red shift. If the system is not exactly edge on, but is tilted on the sky, then you'll see a lower value of the red shifts and blue shifts. So the inclination, the inclination of this pair could be hiding some of the mass. That's right. How did you pick this system to look at? How did you pick this pair? When you look at this Apogee data... This is the survey of the sky that takes repeated spectra of stars? Yeah. So you have, let's say, 150,000 stars, and you say, which stars look like they're orbiting something? And what you find is 5,000 systems. And the problem is, is that you have only these couple radial velocity measurements. And so you only know that the radial velocity changed. You don't know whether the period of the orbit is one day or 100 days, because all you see is, let's say, Apogee made a measurement on one day, and then 10 days later, they made another measurement, and the radial velocity has shifted. Did the system orbit 10 times in the intervening 10 days, or did it orbit one-tenth of its total orbit? You have no idea. You're staring at these 5,000 systems, and you say, what am I going to do? Uh, I was sitting in my office, you know, and I'm looking at this data and trying to figure out what to do. And I had a good idea. What I'm going to do is I'm going to first compute how fast the radial velocity could be changing. So I actually measured the acceleration of the object. And then I took the systems with the highest accelerations. I still didn't know their period. And I looked in this assassin survey. So the all sky automated search for supernovae, ASSN, ASSN. Assassin takes pictures of the night sky every night, the entire night sky. We have robotic telescopes set up in the northern and the southern hemisphere. And we take measurements of every star that we can see. We detect some tens of millions of stars and we record that data. And so the idea I had was say, why don't we take the systems that have the highest accelerations in the Apogee survey and go look at what their brightness looks like? Does their brightness vary? And I thought, well, there are a couple possibilities here. One possibility is that the star will be orbiting another star and we'll see one, the smaller star pass in front of the star. And the period of the brightness fluctuations will tell us the orbital period, which is the big missing piece from the point of view of the radial velocity observations. And this particular system, this giant star has a big spot on it, a big set of spots that's always facing the same side to the black hole. And so as it orbits around the black hole, we see it get brighter and dimmer on this period of 83 days. And what I did is I said, oh, well, that's great. We have a system that in Apogee has high acceleration, but in the assassin light curves has a period of 83 days. This was our best candidate. It immediately showed up. That took one day to do that. And we were like, wow, this is really interesting. We need more observations. And so then we followed it up with other radial velocity measurements, and we followed it up with more light curve measurements, and then the whole thing came together. But a key piece of the discovery was combining the light curve of the star in order to guess the period of the radial velocity variations. Because you're bringing together these two data sets and showing what can be pulled out um, by looking at them and, and making these, you know, making these comparisons. 
Precisely. It's a new discovery method. It's a discovery of a non-interacting black hole, which is the first time that's been seen, we think, outside of a globular cluster. And the black hole mass is weird. It's 3.3 solar masses is the best fit, and that it hasn't been seen before either. We'll see if the error bars decrease with the new Gaia data. Thank you so much, Todd. You're welcome. Todd Thompson is a professor in the Department of Astronomy at The Ohio State University. You can find a link to his paper at sciencemag.org slash podcast. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Bayer. Bayer develops digital tools to help farmers use less water to grow their crops. From advances in health to innovations in agriculture, Bayer is advancing science for a better life. At Bayer, this is why we science. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, many other places, or you can listen on the science website at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. There you'll find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. The show was produced by Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Special thanks to Megan Cantwell and Joel Goldberg. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.